I wish you a <clears throat> a blessed Memorial Day tomorrow. Please take the time and the opportunity to spend some time in contemplating what it really is all about and is customary. Uh, please take the time at three o'clock tomorrow afternoon uh, for a few moments of silence to remember those who gave their lives in defense of American freedom and liberty. So we are told we'll never know exactly how many, but as of now I believe approximately 1.8 million Americans from 1775 to this hour have given their lives for freedom and liberty. Please pray for those who will and the families of those who will give their lives in the defense of American freedom and liberty. <clears throat> Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this fine early summer weather. Thank you for those who have come to hear you speak to them out of your word, one of the most magnificent works in the divine library. Thank you for all of our folks who are watching and listening from our community, from various states in our own country. We pray in particular for those who are on literally the far side of the world who will be watching and listening today and in the days this week and weeks to come. Open their minds, open their hearts as well to understand the truth of your words. Speak to them by way of your Holy Spirit to appropriate these words in and over their life. The most important truths that any human being could possibly be confronted with are the truths that we are confronted with today and will be confronted throughout every verse and every chapter of this gospel. We pray that those who are watching and listening about the world who desperately needs salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ will be drawn by the proclamation of this word to bow to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we pray that the proclamation of this gospel will strengthen the faith and enlighten further the hearts and minds of those who do believe in you, those who are in you by divine plan, by way of the work of the Son, and that life won for us by the Son applied to our souls by God the Holy Spirit, all by divine plan from God Almighty, the Father. We pray for everyone who needs prayer, who has requested prayer. Help them help their families. Reveal yourself to these folks in a very special way, in ways that you know best, to draw them into you and prepare them for the eternal kingdom. So bless this proclamation this morning of your word, O sovereign God. May the meditations of all of our hearts and may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O great I am, Father, Son, and Spirit. You who are one and only hope, and you who are more than hope enough. In the name of the divine word, Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of the Lord? <clears throat> today we take flight, today we set sail into the heights and the deep waters of the prologue of the Gospel of John. Please forgive me while we unpack the truth of the Gospel of John. This is going to be covered with books and papers. To teach 
and preach the Gospel of John, you have to come well prepared or heavily armed. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, the beginning of the beginning, the beginning of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. Please be seated. So in this, the beginning of John's prologue to his gospel, as we begin our exploration of the gospel of John, as many a theologian has remarked, for 2,000 years you are certainly walking upon holy ground when you are embarking upon this gospel and upon the prologue of this gospel. The important thing is you must understand the message of this prologue in order to appropriate any of the truth that John gives you throughout the entire remainder of this gospel. He hits you, if I can use that word, please forgive me. He hits you with some of the most important truths. Well, he is hitting you, confronting you with some of the, the most important truths that a human being could ever be confronted with. The true nature of the being of the one true living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He will teach you of Christ the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, and he will teach you the doctrine of the Trinity, and he will begin to teach you God's plan for salvation for his creation and for humanity. So we are, yes, very much walking on holy ground. Again, the prologue must be understood. You must grasp its truth. You must reappropriate its truth. For it is the foundation for the remainder of everything else that John teaches and acquaints you with in this gospel. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with the commentaries of of, uh, Mr. William Hendrickson. He wrote a wonderful commentary on John. I have a numerous commentaries on the Gospel of John. He begins his commentary great. This Gospel opens magnificently is his opening statement. It begins by portraying the life of Christ Jesus in eternity past before the world was. That life was rich and glorious, filled with infinite delight and serene blessedness in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. This is the life of God when there was nothing but God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Once this, this truth is grasped, he writes, the condescending love of Christ in becoming flesh to save us will be appreciated more fully. I don't know if any of you are aware of this, but in Christian imagery over the past centuries, each of the four Gospels has an emblem, a symbol. And the traditional symbol of the Gospel of John is an eagle. Now think about that. It doesn't take long to figure out why. What do eagles do? Soar the heights. And the symbol for John's gospel was traditionally an eagle because theologically he takes you into realms unknown. Soars into theological heights that are scarcely paralleled by any other book in the Bible or any other biblical author. Verse 1. 
In the beginning was the word, and arche and halogos in the original Greek. Very important, very specifically written. And the manner in which it was written, Greek grammar, syntax, and vocabulary, yes, I will bore you with that because it is very important. And John was inspired by the Spirit down to the grammar and the syntax and the specific vocabulary of what he wrote. And arche and halagos, in the beginning. You see what John is doing? I believe we mentioned this last week. He is restating, he is taking you back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. To the very beginning of the universe. Eternity past. The very beginning of the Bible. Bara barashit Elohim. In the Hebrew, in the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. They are both saying exactly the same thing. Before creation was created, before the universe came into being, this Word already existed. The Word, the eternal Word, was God. God was. God is. You see, John is confronting you with the most foundational, fundamental truth that you will ever be confronted with. There is a God. God is, always has, now, and ever shall be. The one and the only true living God who created the universe and who has revealed himself to humanity. And his greatest revelation of himself to humanity is Jesus Christ, the divine word. God is. Once you grasp that truth, you will be able to grasp every other truth in the Gospel of John. If you don't get that right, you will be in darkness and you will grasp nothing that John has to offer. First of all, in the beginning, God. The one true living God. He was absolute and ultimate reality for each and every one of us. The Word, God, John will tell us this Jesus of Nazareth, who he loved and knew, Christ, who he will teach us is God the Son, he existed according to this statement from all of eternity past. He is the eternal being, always to him in the eternal present. Now what I mean by the eternal present, he lives inside and outside of time and space as you and I experience it. We are finite and he is infinite. We live in time and space. He lives in and outside of time and space. So everything to him is the eternal present. I believe C.S. Lewis used this analogy before. Imagine a tabletop. Here is eternity past. Here is eternity future. Here is God. Here is the beginning of the world. Here is the end of the world. Everything to him is the eternal present. That is an infinite being, which we can scarcely contemplate or imagine. That is Christ, the second person of the Trinity. That is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who took upon himself a human body and a human nature and invaded history according to divine plan from eternity past. Remember that is you're encountering him all the way through the Gospel of John. This is who he is. The eternal pre-existent word, the Father's agent in creation, by whom all things came into being. And without him, absolutely nothing would exist whatsoever that has come into existence or will come into existence. This is his true identity. And John challenges you and confronts you with his true identity immediately upon entering into this gospel. 
He possesses aseity. I've given you this word before. It's a very important word. It's a word that can only apply to God. It was a word that was invented for God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. One of my favorite theologians used to say before he was entering the Father's house, he used to get chills every time he heard this word, aseity. The word aseity means he and the only he, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has the power of being in and of himself. He possesses aseity. John confronts us with this. The word God, God the Son, was not a created being. Even though he took on a body and a human nature in the first century A.D., something he did not have before, he was not born into existence. He pre-existed. He always existed as God, the eternal word. There was never a time when he came into being and had a beginning. He possesses a seity. He is the eternal God. He is the one and the only one who has the power of being in and of himself. Okay? So this word, God the Son, was not a created being. This word, John will tell us shortly, was God's very agent in creation. Now what was his life like, this life of the word? God in eternity past. Let me give you a quote, or work you through a bit of that quote from William Hendrickson. He tells you what the life of Christ was like in his preexistence. That life was rich and glorious, filled with infinite wisdom and serene blessedness in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. There was a time when only Father, Son, and Spirit existed. No one and nothing else. And he was perfectly satisfied, perfectly fulfilled, perfectly happy, perfectly joyous. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect relationship in eternity past before Father, Son, and Spirit, three in personhood, one in being, created anything. Let me speak in defense of God. He doesn't need you and He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anything, for He is God. The great I Am, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect satisfaction and fulfillment and peace and joy from eternity past. Let's get an ego check on ourselves, finite human beings, creatures. Now His love for us is absolutely astounding. It's staggering. It'll take all of eternity for us to truly grasp the love of God for us. But He did not need us. That's not why He made us. The reason why He made us and redeemed us was for our benefit. God created other sentient beings, human beings, and angelic beings to enjoy Him, to know Him, and to glorify Him forever. He didn't create us because He needed us. He created us so we could enjoy Him and know Him, and experience bliss as a created being who is to bear His image in eternity and in the material world, the material created universe that He made for us to inhabit and enjoy Him for forever. And He loved us so much after creating us by divine plan that He visited us personally by taking on humanity upon Himself and entering the creation at the perfect time in the divine plan to save us from ourselves and from the evil one and from a fallen world and giving us the promise in this gospel that it will all be restored and those who are in him will experience this life as he originally intended for us, the life that he created us to enjoy in his presence. John is implying all that you all that you will hear, all that you encounter in this gospel 
is by a divine plan, planned from before the beginning. So the starting point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to John, is in the beginning, in eternity past. Now, in the beginning was the word, logos, and arche and halagos. Who or what is this word? Well, I hope I've already given it away. The, the correct question is, who is this word, not what is this word? The Greco-Romans in the first century would have been asking, what exactly is your definition of the word rather than who? The Jews would have been a good deal further ahead of them as in believing that this must be a reference to the great I am who revealed himself to Moses in some way. But John is going to turn everything upside down and inside out for all of them shortly. Who or what is this word? What does John mean by logos or word? It's a very intriguing thing that he says here. It's very intriguing among all the things that he could have said. Why didn't he just say Jesus was in the beginning? The eternal son was in the beginning from before the beginning. What, why does he say, what, what is this word all about? Have you ever wondered that? Yes, you have. Be honest. I used to wonder it for a long time and, and no one properly explained it to me. Of course, I went to church and I heard that, oh, well, this word means Jesus. But nobody really explained to me why the word means Jesus. And why John chose to say word, logos, instead of Jesus. Why did he do that? That needs to be explained. You need, you need to know these things. Why Logos? Why Word? Well, you, of course, have to go back to the first century A.D. To the culture, to the mind, to the philosophy, to the beliefs of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greco-Romans in the first century A.D. when Paul wrote the... Uh, when Paul, I'm still in Ephesians. When the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. Why did the Spirit of God inspire him to say Logos, or Word? Here it is. First, let's address, this is an evangelistic book. He wants to give the good news of God the Son to the Greeks and the Romans. So he uses the Word. It's going to grab their attention. And he's going to turn the whole thing on its head for them. There was, uh, I have to take a big story and make it short. That, again, that's my frustration with Sunday morning as opposed to Tuesday nights. Um, let me read this to you first and I'll unpack it a bit. Those of you who have your ESV study Bible, please make use of it. In the beginning was the Word, echoes the opening phrase of the book of Genesis. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John will soon identify this Word as Jesus, but here he locates Jesus' existence in eternity past with God. The term, the word, logos, conveys the notion of divine self-expression or speech with the Greeks, Romans, and the Jews. And with the Jewish people, this has a very rich Old Testament background. God's word is effective. God speaks. He acts. He speaks. Things come into being. And by speech, he relates personally to his people. John also shows how this concept of the word is superior to a Greek philosophical concept of word or logos as an impersonal principle of reason that gave order to the universe. To the Greeks and the Romans, this goes back to Heraclitus, to Plato. The Greeks and, Greek and Roman culture adopted it as well. They looked out at the universe and they saw reason. They saw rationality. They saw harmony. They saw order. 
And they tried to put this together. But being pagans, they had a very difficult time of it. And they thought that there was this rationality, this intelligence, this wisdom, this reason, this logos, this word that was behind all things, and that was the source of all things, and that kept all things humming together. And in time, one of the Greek philosophers, Heraclitus, began to say that this logos must be theos, God. And it's interesting that in his writings, I do not believe he said a god or a goddess. He began to think of God, as in monotheism, perhaps one god. Later on, the Jewish uh, philosopher Philo, who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, amongst a huge Jewish community there, he uses this term logos, I think, hundreds of times. And sometimes, as a Jew, he begins to apply the term logos to God, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews. And then sometimes he uses it in that sort of fuzzy, vague, esoteric, Greco-Roman way. You see what John is doing? John is saying, you've got the Logos wrong. I know what you think about Logos. Logos is not an impersonal force of rationality or reason or wisdom that brought all things into being and keeps them humming along. The Logos is not an impersonal force. The Logos is a personal being. The most personal of all beings, God, the one true living God of the Jews, who revealed himself to the Jewish people and in the Jewish scriptures. This Logos took on humanity. He became flesh and visited us. I know the Logos. I lived with him. I walked with him. I talked with him. I ate meals with him. I experienced life with him. You've got the Logos all wrong. I know the real Logos. The Logos is Jesus who took on humanity and visited us to save us. He's your true Logos. And I'm going to tell you in my gospel all about him. Who he is, what he is, what he came to do, what he accomplished, what he's going to do. Okay? I've made a big story a lot shorter, hopefully, for you. But this Logos would have grabbed uh, folks of Greco-Roman philosophy and thought it would have grabbed their attention. It would have been something that they could identify with. But they're starting to say, Whoa, what is this Jewish guy? Where is he going with this? This isn't quite the Logos that our philosophers have been speaking of. And he seems to be speaking of this Logos with, with definiteness and with, and with character and, as a, and a pers as a personal being. Okay. Now, what about the Jewish concept? Word. Or Logos. What's a Jew going to think? What is the word going to mean to a Jew? Think of the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say? By the word of the Lord, the heavens came into being. The Old Testament says, The word of the Lord came to Abraham and all the patriarchs. The word of the Lord came to Moses, saying. The word of the Lord came to the prophets, saying. To a Jew, the word of the Lord is almost an oblique way of saying God Himself. God speaking, God working, God acting. And in a, some written works called the Targums, which were Jewish commentaries or translations of the Old Testament Scriptures to Jewish people around the Mediterranean world who weren't speaking Hebrew anymore, 
In these targums, of course, they honored the commandment of do not take the Lord's name in vain. So to be safe in not taking the Lord's name in vain, they would have these certain expressions for when they saw the name of God in the Bible that they could read. We all knew we were talking about God personally, but we weren't using God's personal name, so we wouldn't take His name in vain. Is that clear? So you'll hear expressions like the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord. By the way, every time in the Old Testament you see capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh, the personal name of the one true living God, as given to Moses. And they didn't want to say the Lord's name in vain and break the commandment. So what was another expression that they often used to describe him? The Word. The Word of the Lord. Let me sum this up for you by two wonderful theologians. One, Dr. D.A. Carson. In short, God's Word, this Word in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, is His powerful self-expression. God Himself working in creation. God revealing Himself. God working in salvation. And the personification of this word that John confronts us with in this verse makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure of Himself, the person of His own Son. But if the expression would prove richest for Jewish readers and listeners, it would also resonate in the minds of readers in, with entirely pagan backgrounds. In their case, however, they would soon discover that whatever it was that they had understood this term logos to mean in the past, this Jewish author John, whose work they were now reading, he was forcing them into fresh thought altogether. End quote. Now I'll give you a quote from theologian William Temple. The word or logos alike for Jew and Gentile, you must understand, represents the ruling fact of the universe and represents that fact as the very self-expression of God. Mm. The Jew will remember in the Old Testament, but by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The Greco-Roman will think of the rational principle of which all natural laws are particular expressions. You see, both of them would and will agree that this Logos that this Jewish man is writing about is the starting point, the first cause of all things. I love this book. And I crave your patience in unpacking its truth. So this is what you have to confront all of those poor, foolish people living in darkness who say that there is no God, that everything in this magnificent universe just came about by accident. I have never heard of anything so foolish in all of my life. There had to be a start, a beginning, a first cause. And John is confronting you with that first cause. He who is the first cause. The old philosophers in Latin had an expression. They got it. Frankly, a child can get this. Ex nihilo nihil feet. Out of nothing, nothing comes. You must have someone or something in order to have anything else. He's confronting you with this most fundamental fact. Beginning of his gospel. All right. Now, the Jewish concept, and well, let me... Uh, 
John is confronting everybody, you see. He's confronting Jews and Gentiles with the reality of the one true God, the true Logos, the true creator, the true reason, the true meaning behind the created universe. We start this gospel with him. And the word was God. The word was God. Or the word was with God. Pardon me. Let me not get ahead of myself. In the beginning was this word, prostonteon. And this word was with God, singular God, one God, one true living God. Interesting. This can also be translated as, and this is hard to translate in English and get all the nuances of it. It really is. This can also arguably be translated as, and the word was face to face with God. He's writing with God as in they're in some sort of an embrace staying with one another or moving towards one another. He's describing the oneness of the Son and the Father. He was in the beginning and He was with God in this embrace, face to face with the one true God, suggesting an extremely close, perfect, intimate, harmonious relationship with God. This is God the Father, God the Son, in their eternal state, in this harmonious, pre-existent relationship. Now, the word with God, face to face with God. What is John saying here? The Word is distinct from God. There is the Word, and the Word was with God. So there is the Word, and there is God. The Word is distinct, and God is distinct. Now the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans are going to start scratching their heads. And we do as well. This is why this is important for us to work this out. The word is distinct from God, so here we begin, folks, the very deep waters of the doctrine of the Trinity. John is saying that the word is a person, a distinct person, and because he was in eternity past, he has to be divine. And yet this word is distinct from God. So John here is teaching, he is implying, if not explicitly stating, I think he is for all practical purposes explicitly stating, the distinction of the three persons of the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, within the one being of God. The Word, the Son, God, the Father. And later in the Gospel, of course, John will teach us the truth of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, sent by the Son and the Father. Okay. Now we rise to even greater heights. John writes, And the Word was God. There is this Word, and there is God and yet this word was and is God? Where in the world is he taking us? What does this mean? Theos en halogos. And he writes that word order for a very specific reason, using very particular grammar for a particular reason. So here we ascend even greater heights, sail into deeper waters. The word was, and allow me to add, therefore is God distinct in person from God the Father, and yet was God. Now some unbelievers, uh, unbelievers of various persuasions, they try to use this passage to deny that John clearly, what John clearly states. And they use something of, if I can use this old expression, something of a straw man grammar argument that really does fall flat upon careful exa examination of the Greek grammar, the syntax, and the vocabulary. Now, to get technical, I'm going to get technical on you for a little bit, but this is important. You know why it's important? Because I encountered myself how important this is. I won't tell you the story again. I did last week. 
But I found out how in little old Sydney, Ohio, on any old mundane day, in any old mundane neighborhood, I literally bumped into a woman on the street and with this was an issue, a huge issue. And her salvation, or no, could depend upon this issue. You must know what John is writing here. Why and how? So that you can defend the truth of the full deity of Christ the Son to other people out there who deny it. And deny it because of lies and straw man arguments. Let me give you this uh, other completion of this note from the ESV Study Bible. And then I'll wrap it up for you, I hope, rather quickly. And the word was with God indicates interpersonal relationship with God. But then, and the word was God, affirms that this word was also the same God who created the universe in the beginning. Here are the building blocks that go into the doctrine of the Trinity. The one true God exists of more than one person. They relate to each other. They have always existed. Now, from the patristic area with the heretic Arius, until the present days, Jehovah's Witnesses, some have claimed that the word was God, merely identifies Jesus as a God, rather than identifying Jesus as the God. Because the Greek word for God, theos, is not preceded by a definite article. However, in Greek grammar, what we call Colwell's rule indicates that the translation a God is not required here. For lack of an article does not necessarily indicate indefiniteness a God, but rather specifies that a given term God is the predicate nominative of a definite subject. This means that the context must determine the meaning of theos, as John uses the word here. And the context clearly indicates that this God that John is talking about, the Word, is the one true God who created all things. That is John's point entirely to this verse and to this prologue and to this book, the full divinity of Jesus as that creator God. Let me sum it up for you in a quicker way. In order to place all of the emphasis on what he writes here on the full divinity of Jesus, the predicate in the original Greek precedes the subject for you language lovers out there. By doing so, John makes it absolutely plain that this word was fully divine. The word was God, as we plainly translate into English. Everything else in this gospel will teach and build upon this fundamental fact. Time and time again through the remainder of the gospel, John will confront you with this fact. The full deity of Jesus that he knew and that he now proclaims. The divine Christ, the Son of God, God the Son. That's the point of the prologue. That's the point of the gospel entirely. Theologian William uh, Edmund Cloney, who's now in the Father's house, gave a wonderful paraphrase, his own Greek translation. John is writing this, The Word was with God, God's eternal fellow. The Word was God, God's very own self. End quote. I'll quote Carson again. Here then are some of the most critical constituents of a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. John includes, or intends, pardon me, that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and words of this Jesus he will introduce are the very deeds and words of God. John is one of the most straightforward of all the New Testament writers concerning the deity of Jesus. Verse 2. Pardon me, folks. Um, I, I already came to the conclusion, 
in preparing these messages that we'll just go of a certain length. And when we run out of time, we'll stop. Wherever that is, even if it's in the middle of a verse. And we'll just simply come back next week from where we left off. We probably won't even get to verse 5 today, if that's all right. Please, are you getting this? Is this clear? Are you enjoying this? And please, those of you watching out there in America and around the world, let us know. This is the most important thing you will ever hear in all of your life. This is the most important thing that I will ever do in my life, is to help you with this. We must get this right. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning, face to face with God. So John's repeating himself, isn't he? Why is he doing that? He's repeating himself for the very reason that any ancient author repeats himself. Because he didn't have exclamation points and underlines and bold-faced type. Ancient writers repeated themselves for emphasis. John is stressing the importance of what he boldly and unapologetically proclaims here. He wants you to get this. He wants to make sure that what he has written is understood. The Word who is God is the very one whom I have also said that he was in the beginning and that he was with God. So John is telling us that this eternally divine Word, who he will tell us is Christ Jesus, existed from all eternity as a distinct divine person, and this Word enjoyed perfect, joyous, harmonious, loving fellowship with God, who we will know as God the Father. And John is confessing once more the full deity, the eternality, the distinct personal existence of Jesus the Christ. So that what? Unbelievers may believe. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And these things have been written to refute hardened unbelievers who are in darkness and deny the truth. And these things have been written so that those who already believe may be strengthened in their belief, so that the believing, confessing church may be firmly established in the faith of these most fundamental facts concerning God and Christ and the Trinity. Verse 3, All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. So now John declares that this Word, who is divine, a distinct person with God, is God, teaching beginning now the three persons of the one nature, essence, and being of God, he is God the Father's agent in the creation of everything that exists. This word is one with the Creator. He is the Creator. One could also render the original Greek this way. I like this translation. Boy, do I wrestle with this one. All things were made by Him. And what was or has been made was in no way and could in no way be made without Him. The eternal Word, God the Son, is God in action. The divine Christ created the universe. He sustains it. He maintains it. This is taught not only by John in this prologue, but it's a common theme that runs throughout the remainder of the New Testament. Remember, 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 this Jesus at this wedding, this Jesus with John the baptizer, this Jesus with Nicodemus, this Jesus getting hot and sweaty and tired and sitting down by a well in Sakar in Samaria. This Jesus hauled in before the prefect, Pontius Pilate. This Jesus is the Word who created the universe and keeps it humming right along according to plan. 
Even when he was gentle, Jesus, meek and mild, walking along the dusty roads of Galilee. That's who the Jesus of John's gospel is. Never forget that as we work our way through the book. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, All things were created by Him in heaven and on earth, things visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those spiritual powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. He was before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There's your Logos, Heraclitus. There's your Logos, Plato. There's your Logos, Philo. And the author of the book of Hebrews writes, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, In these last days, or most recent times, this era in history, he's saying, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through what? Through whom also He made the world. And He, Christ, upholds all things by the what? The Logos. The Word of His power. In Revelation 3.14, John writes, again, the Apostle John, Referring to Jesus, he writes, He is the Amen, meaning truth itself. He is the faithful. He is the true witness of God. He is the beginning of the creation of God. He was God the Father's agent in creating the universe. So this word, He who is the Word, He's the Creator. God the Father's specific agent in creation. who made the world, who sustains creation. In other words, what is John telling you this? I could let you stew on this tonight and in the days to come, but I'm going to come, uh, cut to the chase, as we say. By what I've given you just now, you would come to the conclusion, if you think about this, using any brain power in any time whatsoever, that this word, this Logos that John is telling you about, he is the meaning and the purpose of the universe. He is the meaning and the purpose of this universe and everything that is in it. That, folks, is the most important fundamental fact that you or I will ever be confronted with in this life. And yes, we can finish. Next week, I'll try not to go as long. Please forgive me. But man, we have got to get this prologue right in order to get anything right. The late Charles Krauthammer reminds me of something he said. God bless him. He said, you've got to get your politics right to get anything right. Uh, I, I have to disagree with you there, brother. You've got to get this right. If you get this right, in the end, things will fall into place and be right for you. If you don't get this right, you're not going to get anything right in the end where it really counts. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So now John tells us that as the Word created all things, then naturally, therefore, in Him was life. The Greek word for life is zoe. Do you know any uh, ladies named Zoe? Basically, her name is Greek for life, life itself. Human life, animal life, physical life. It can also refer to spiritual life. In other words, He, the Word, He is what? He is the source of life. He is the giver of life, all life, any life, physical and spiritual or eternal life. Now John here, I believe very well, may mean first and foremost spiritual life, eternal life, since that is a major theme in his gospel. But yes, all life. Jesus, the Word, who is with God and is God, He is the source and the giver of all life. Therefore, He is the meaning and purpose of life. 
and that life was the light of men. So the Word, who was the very source and giver of any and all life, He was the light of, or the light to mankind. The word we tr uh, that we translate in English as man is anthropos. You could just as well, or probably better, translate it as humanity, mankind, human beings. It's a light for all of humanity, for all human beings. So what kind of light is that? How so? We're here in the very beginning of the gospel. John uses light and life. He uses these contrasts, light and darkness, light and life, to teach us of the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he did, what he does, what he will do. Again, he is the giver. He is a source of life. So therefore, he is the one who brings light and life, true light and life, to humanity. Now, what does John mean that the word Christ the Son was the light? Bringing, being, giving, or shining light onto or into mankind. He means this. He's saying this. And remember, Jesus will say later what? I am the light of the world. John is saying that he, this word, is the very light of God's presence. You want the light of God's presence? You want to know God? He's it. He is the one and the only. He is the light of God's truth. He is the light of God revealing himself to human beings in this world, to mankind. The ESV Study Bible writes, Jesus, the Word, as the light, brings to this dark world true knowledge, moral purity, and the light that shows the very presence of God. End quote. Very well put. Christ, the divine Word, get this. This is one of the most important things that I will say, one of the most important things that, that John is saying here. Jesus the Christ, the divine Word, He is the ultimate self-disclosure of God to mankind. Let me read that again. Jesus Christ, the divine Word, He is the ultimate self-disclosure of God to humanity, to mankind. Verse 5, our closing verse for the day. And the light shines in the darkness. Here's his contrasts again. Spiritual darkness, mostly. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome or comprehend it. You can arguably translate that both ways. I think John means both. Jesus, the Word, is the true source of God's true light. And all that that means. In this world. And what? He came to drive away the darkness. The darkness of evil the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of sin, and so forth. John here probably means, yes, again, spiritual light and spiritual darkness, not necessarily physical light or physical darkness. Christ, who is the light, the divine word, he is the revealer of the truth of God. He came to the world to drive away the darkness. And the darkness did not or has not comprehended it or appropriated it, or understood it, or overcome it. You can translate it uh, using all of those words in English. It's a very interesting phrase in the Greek. The word he uses, pardon me, I'm probably going to mispronounce this. I haven't used this word in a while. Katalambano. Katalambano is what we translate as comprehend. You can also, in this context, arguably translate it as overcome. So John is saying the light who came into the world, the darkness of this world, did not understand, comprehend him. The darkness of this world did not receive and accept and appropriate the light that he brought. 
but the darkness in hostility to the light has not ever overcome the light. So John uses this word to probably say all of these things. The light of the word, Christ, the light he brings, the light he shines in the darkness, the darkness did not comprehend or overcome the light of the word. He shines, he brings forth light in this dark world, and this dark world has not overcome or comprehended the light that is the truth to this very day. And the darkness will never, allow me to add, the darkness will never, the darkness will never overcome the light of the divine word. This darkness that John speaks of is a deliberate darkness, folks. A deliberate, willful darkness, personal and otherwise. The darkness of this dark spiritual forces in this world. The darkness of sinful, rebellious humanity in this fallen state of this world. The light, the word arrived in order to restore and to liberate and to save from the darkness. I quote William Henderson again in closing. He writes, It is evident that this darkness does not merely behave negatively. On the contrary, this darkness hates the light, the divine light. It refers this darkness to the world of mankind viewed as a hostile power, which actively resists the light and refuses to accept it. We have, what we have here is a manifestation of the absolute antithesis between light and darkness, the kingdom of God in this world, the Christ and the forces of the evil one. And we will discover shortly as we proceed through John's prologue that the divine word, the Christ, entered this dark world in his incarnation to be the very light of God's revealing himself and the light of God's redemptive work to drive away that darkness. Last word of the day I give to a theologian by the name of Gary Burge, who spent a lot of time in the Near East and Middle East. He gives a great summation of the opening of this prologue. This prologue is the most complete, indeed the most explicit study of the pre-existence of Christ in all of the New Testament. It's a bold claim, but I think he's right. The significance of Jesus is not merely in his ability to be a miracle worker, a performer of mighty deeds, nor it is, is it in his wisdom as a great teacher or a preacher. Rather, Jesus is God become flesh. That is, the phenomenon of Jesus Christ is a phenomenon unlike anything that this world has ever witnessed before or since. He is God in descent, God stepping down into the context of humanity. In more technical terms, Jesus has an ontological divinity, ontological meaning his very being, his essence, his very nature is God, one with God. This is to be compared with an ethical divinity. What do we mean by that? An ethical divinity is that in which Jesus is aligned with or valued as God, as evidenced in what he does, the works that he performs. This may at first seem obvious to those who have been nurtured in a Christian environment, but of course today you cannot assume that men and women truly understand the implications about Christ here in John's incarnational theology. Springing from this doctrine of the high divinity of Jesus, the divinity anchored in his pre-existence in eternity past, comes a host of theological themes that we have to press home when we study this text. 
John's understanding of revelation, God revealing himself, lifts Jesus' words above those of a prophet or any other human being. The voice of Jesus is the voice of God. It is for this reason that Jesus can tell the disciple Philip that seeing him is the same thing as seeing the Father. This is also why the disciple Thomas, at the close of the gospel, can give Jesus this acclaim, My Lord and my God. In a similar fashion, John's understanding of redemption, salvation, now becomes a divine work that parallels Paul's words to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in or by way of Jesus, the Christ, God the Son. Redemption is thus no divinely inspired human event at all that sets out to placate God. Redemption is God himself at work, in action, in this world, achieving his goal, his plan, his purpose, in repairing the consequences of sin and bringing humanity back into relationship with himself. Verses 1 to 5 of the prologue. Go meditate on these things. Folks, when we are all on the other side, 10,000 years from now, we're still going to be learning and experiencing and encountering the truth of these first five verses in His very physical presence. And we will only be able to wonder and worship and adore. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, our hearts and our souls, our minds are filled with joy at being confronted with your magnificence from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit. And being confronted with this plan that the divine Son, the Word, He who is the meaning and purpose of the universe, He who is the rationality and the reason behind the universe, He who is the Father's very agent in creation, that a plan was devised in the might and heart of the being of God, that the divine Son, the Word, should become a human being, enter history according to the divine plan, and save us so that we may know you, worship you, and glorify you forever. Thank you for these magnificent heights and deep waters that we are studying. And I pray, O living God, send your Holy Spirit upon these people, here in the flesh and those who are watching and listening, to receive the truth of this word and appropriate it in their life to find true life, life as it was always meant to be, in Jesus Christ, the divine word. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for your patience this morning and beginning the gospel.